Let's be honest, most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank, and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today. Critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs. Opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money go round. Welcome to Fintech Insider Insights. We've been downloaded in 146 countries and we continue to be near the top of the business category in iTunes. So thank you, thank you everyone for listening. I'm Simon Taylor and as always, I'm joined by one of my 11FS colleagues here. We've got David Breer today and we're talking about one of the hardest things for banks to innovate around and that is business model. There's a lot of talk of having an app, but today's all about the business model. So on with the show. Joining us for the discussion, we've got Dora, I don't know how to say her last name, so I'll ask her to say it in a moment, Head of Business Development for Azimos. Hello, and my last name is pronounced Ziambra. Ziambra, there we go, we got there. Do you know what, I love that finally that happened to you now. (laughs) You've been so smug over the last kind of three or four months, and now that's happened to you, so Yeah, no, I'm eating humble pie right now, but there's a name I can pronounce. We're fortunate to have Tom Blomfeld, the CEO of Monzo, with us. Tom, thanks for being on the show. Delighted to be here. As usual, we've got David Breer here. David, say hello to everybody. Hello. So guys, um, I guess before we start talking about new business models, um, how would you describe the traditional business model of banking? Do you, do you have any thoughts there? Yeah, I, it's something I've been quite vocal about, I guess, over the last couple of years. I think it, it's fundamentally broken. It's, it is under attack. And I, so I describe it in this way. I think it's all about lifetime value and, and cross-sell. So banks go into school playgrounds often giving out footballs or Rihanna CDs. Genuinely, I've I've seen examples of this, to recruit kids to open a bank account. And then they spend the life of that that child as they grow up and become an adult, cross-selling them product, whether it's a student account, a student overdraft, a credit card, a car loan, a mortgage, a pension, whatever it is throughout the life cycle of that customer. And they rely on this sort of inertia and lock-in to cross-sell products which aren't aren't the most competitive because you reserve those for your new customers to attract them in. And then once they're locked in, they've got, you've got this concept of customer ownership, you can sort of cross-sell product. It just seems like a huge conflict of interest. I see them as being very siloed and owning the whole value chain. So along the lines of cross-selling, you're saying, okay, yeah, I'll give you a bank account and then I'll give you a loan. But they also try to do that all across the board. And most recently, because the interest rates are so low, they're massively challenged because they don't have any more revenues in concentrating on that one thing. And as my previous life was actually in trading, there's that section of the banks that's actually investment banking that doesn't necessarily serve the customer, but has been generating a lot of revenues. And as that has also been decreasing, they're, they're all sitting around being like, okay, we don't serve the customer, 
but what are we doing at the end of the day? Yeah, it kind of became an operation where you had um, deposits, um, payments, and lending. I think that's the simplest way I could mm. I could put it. So you put your money there, they help you move money, and sometimes they'll lend you money. And those three businesses kind of made a bit of money, did okay, you can cream a profit out of it, but it's not really going anywhere. It's like there's only so many people in the country, there's only so much growth you're going to have. It's kind of saturated. So the, the business model was we have an investment banking division that then takes all of that money bets it on the capital markets and financial markets and makes money. But that seems to have come to an end. Yeah, yeah. I, I can definitely relate to your story as well, Tom. That's literally how my bank got me. It was a clipboard. Clip <laughs> no, it wasn't a Rihanna CD. I definitely didn't go to school when Rihanna CDs were around. I have to say it was a little bit earlier than that. But um, but yeah, it was a clipboard and a pen that got me. And I was with that bank for like 20 years following mm. that. And like exactly like you say, it was a, a kind of a how they can upsell me, upsell me until I'm on a mortgage. And then I'm kind of, uh, you know, wedded to that for 25 years. So it's um, it's an interesting model, isn't it? Get them early and because it almost sounds slightly sort of parasitic. It does. And I, this phrase, customer ownership, just strikes me as totally wrong-headed. The idea that, that you own the customer you're entitled to sell them a product i think i think we as an industry need to totally reverse that and be servant to the customer you know if, if we do genuinely serve them and put their interests first then perhaps they'll grace us with their business but this this idea of custom ownership just makes me so angry but and it's sort of the physical customer the customer data it seems to be sort of lots of different angles that um you know there's this perception of ownership doesn't it yeah it's never how can i help my customer how can i help them achieve their goals in life it's how can i sell them an, another product and, and there, yeah you're right there's a sense of belonging it they're mine not i'm lucky to have them i'm lucky to to, to serve them because they're the ones that, that generate me profit so is that um part of the reason that we think that business model under pressure you know just that sort of we're going to hook you in we're going to keep you for a long time we're going to try and cross sell cross sell to you do you think that's under pressure or is that just going to be the norm for the next 30 years it's under huge pressure i mean the fca have treatment of backbook customers as one of their their priorities for for the um, financial year the uh, this idea that because you've been with bank 15 years you don't get their best products that 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 doesn't seem fair and so absolutely there's pressure from so the, the regulator both in terms of that sort of FCA pressure, I think PSD2 also will really crack that model open. And then a whole wave of, of new challenger banks, obviously, who have a sort of different business model in mind. The other thing that changed was actually the trust, because the financial crisis made a lot of people distrust the banking institution that they've always admired or knew that it was going to be there the next day. And suddenly it was like, oh, it might actually go away. And they were actually betting my own money. Um, they lost that trust, although I also think that it's a challenge for us, fintech companies, to gain that level of trust again. So we're still kind of in the middle. We don't trust the old banks, but we're still struggling to be completely confident and reliant on fintech companies. So, so is there something where you're the CEO of a, of a large retail bank in the UK and on the one hand you've got your shareholders who are largely probably the uh, you know the Pimpcos and the Blackrocks, these activist shareholders who are like, cut your costs and uh, give me some dividend yield because that is all you exist for. You're not a growth company. Um, on the other hand, they've got regulators handing them ever greater fines. And on the, the third hand, you know, ever greater fines and I think pushing them to also do the right thing some of the time as well um, against an old business model. And then on, on the third side, you've kind of got this 
this um, cost pressure that comes from all of this legacy equipment that they're really struggling to, to do something with. Mm. Are these pressures like a pincer movement? And you know, kind of, um, does that create an op- more opportunity for fintech? Because one of the things I hear when I talk to senior execs a lot is, you know, these fintechs are fine, but they're playing at the margins. Like, is, is, I'm assuming that's not how you see it, Dora. Or is, it, is it a bit different to that or? Playing to the margins. I think that most of us, at least what we do, we're concentrating on one thing. We're not trying to lend money. We're not trying to you know, give you a financial credit score at this stage. We're just doing cross-border payments in an easy, safe, and more transparent way and cheaper across the board. So that allows us to do something really well. Yeah, I, I guess maybe if we look at like a specific example, right? You know, if I look at a current account, you know, I guess the you know the business model of a current account, and actually in the way in which organisations make money from current accounts, there, you know, specifically in the UK, we'll talk about free banking. We talk about the ability to access these services for free, but generally they're punishing a bunch of people who need those services way more than anybody really. You know, we're talking about sort of the uh, you know punitive charges around overdrafts. We're talking about uh, really kind of allowing. Uh, not allowing people to gain access to, to to current accounts when they actually need them. So, you know, I kind of think this feels it feels wrong. You know, it feels like most of the revenue that's generated out of current accounts specifically is like a bear trap. You know, it's kind of a yeah. you know we get you in and we keep you there. We don't kill you, but we you know we keep you there rather than alone long enough. And that can't be again that can't be sustainable. So no, especially in light of the recent the CMA order which just came out, which said actually. It requires the banks to alert customers when they're about to incur those fees and also requires each bank to publish um, the maximum monthly charge, I think it's called. So what would happen if every single day you hit all of the charges for 30 days, how much would that cost? The banks have to publish that number now. Um, It's going to be terrifying, (laughs) isn't it? Yeah. So I think the regulator is, you know, the CMA and the FCA really are pushing banks on that point. But you're right, they've they've got away with it for for too long. Sort of those penalty fees and charges. A friend of mine recently incurred a bunch of these and you're, the measure of how much the banks are already aware that, that these are unsustainable is you call them up and complain and in a second they will drop them for you, right? You pick up the phone and say, I'd like to make a complaint. And as soon as you get complaint, it's, it's all refunded back in your account straight away. Fair, fair cop, God, you got us. <laughs> yeah, you go and have your money back. Yeah, yeah really, it's that, it's that simple normally. It points to something being wrong. But it, yeah, that's, that is terrifying, right? If, if that's the method for making money out of a product in terms of what you're doing and you know that's not right, we get into kind of an ethical conversation here quite quickly. Again, I guess this is why we, we need to change it, right? And I think genuinely, like people in banks, um, I don't see them all as being some sort of Scrooge character. In fact, the overwhelming majority of these people are very good people fighting to do the right things yeah. for their customers. But these business models have come in drips over 30 years and have become sort of cultural norm, cultural norm, cultural norm, cultural norm. And actually, if it's the only way you know how to make money, then you need an alternative. But is that not then potentially a tension between what internal departments want to be able to do and actually the business model? So, you know, things like SMS around alerting me- mechanisms, you know, these things have been around for, for ages. And actually, I guess the tension there is it's, it's kind of a revenue negative for yep. most of these organizations to do these things. So stepping up the service, stepping up what really is in the interest of the customer actually is negative for your business case. For sure. And I think this is a classic kind of innovators dilemma problem where you've got you've had this sort of sustaining innovation this you know the problem with these big banks is they have been relatively well run actually in the retail departments and you get this local optimization and you reach a local maximum where everything is perfectly optimized and you can't go anywhere without reducing margins 
you have, you will lose revenue. You know, you're, you're sort of perched on top of this hill, and you can you can see this higher peak in the distance. But to get to that peak, you've got to go down into the valley, and that's going to hurt your profits for for many many years. Mm. And which senior manager, which sort of CEO at any of the big banks, wants to take a profits hit for five years to increase profits in ten years when they're going to be retired? And, and they've got the shareholders pushing them in precisely the opposite direction. For sure. And so, but so, we do have plenty of examples of companies that went that way. I think Nokia and Kodak are examples that we like talking about, but it's true. It's like 10 years ago, I had a Nokia phone yeah. and everybody thought that Nokia was the next big thing. And they might not because in the next five years they'll be retired, but it, it takes a brave company to make that decision and say, I'm going to take a hit for one to two years. The market is going to completely kick me in the, in the butt but you potentially have to do it because in the long run, you're not going to survive. And there are institutions that existed for 200, 300 years and they blew up. Yeah, no, the, the half-life of companies is, is shrinking all the time. And I guess there are though examples of companies that have achieved. Um, so if I look at Microsoft, I look at General Electric as companies that had a business model that has changed. And actually, to mm -hmm. me, innovation isn't having an app, it's having a new business model. Yep. So, so give me an example. I mean, Tom, talk to me about you know, what is the business model of, of, of Monza really, is, or what's the thesis at least? I think it picks up on one of uh, Dora's earlier points, which was this sort of this interesting phenomenon of uh, disaggregation and monoline providers. So people doing one thing really, really well, which has been, you know, in the last five or 10 years, we've seen businesses like Azimo and TransferWise or Funding Circle or Zopra, whatever it is. These, these businesses doing one thing really, really well. And as a, as a customer, that's great because you've now got much better choice, much better price, much better customer service. But it's kind of a pain to maintain 15 or 20 different accounts to service all your financial needs. So you have this wave of, of um, disaggregation, I guess, and then a, a second phase of re-aggregation. And I think this ties into APIs and PSD2 and sort of being a, a marketplace bank. I think that for me and for you know many uh people in this industry, that, that is the future. It's a, a customer interface that acts as a, a platform for all of your financial problems and it's sort of the next concentric circle out from the traditional financial products. So a, a single interface that gives you access to the Asimos and the funding circles and the transferwises with a delightful one-click user experience, but still giving you the benefits of that choice and that customer service. Mm -hmm. So sort of looser recoupling around APIs. So the you know the fintechs as one you know one fintech company doesn't seem that threatening, but actually when somebody's able to wrap all of those fintechs up together into a more complete service, suddenly it starts to look and feel like you know a collection of thirty organisations that are the absolute best in the world at what they do, and it starts to start to look and feel very different. So it's that one sort of beasting you can deal with, but a thousand of them are going to be problems, right? Yeah. Like and it's not just fintechs. After PSD two, all of the banks will have to open up APIs around all of their products. So a whoever provides the best interface can take the best products, if it's from HSBC or Barclays or Asimo, it really doesn't matter. You can kind of really cut it in a load of different directions to, to truly put together a, a totally customized solution for every single person in the country. And it becomes an opportunity as well, I think, for the big banks, you know, if they were to get that right. But of course, this model would work if the fintechs continue to exist and be good at the one thing that they do right. Because obviously, I find it quite challenging to the collaboration with larger financial institutions is always quite challenging for fintech startups. 
we're, we're not even a startup. You know, we're talking about a company as with a hundred people in two different uh, countries. So you know, probably growing scale. out of scale, a uh, bigger one. But if we were not to be there, then this platform of fintech that are the best at what they do would not really exist. Mm-hmm. So how many times have I spoken to one of the large banking institutions that they want to collaborate with us, but the way of thinking is so different that it becomes impossible. We are flexible and agile. By the time they decide to do something, it's a year down the road. And you've been battling somebody in procurement forever, isn't it? Yeah. I think it's an interesting, because like you say, Tom, everybody has these opportunities. You know, you've got this opportunity in terms of creating this marketplace bank. Equally, HSBC does. I guess to your point, though, it's... Um, it's all opportunity to you. This is this is new. Whereas actually, if, if I'm the CEO of HSBC, this is it, you know we refer to it as being all stick. You know, this is yeah. I've got to let go of control a little bit and expose some data a little bit, and maybe you know let somebody else play with some of our customers. Yep. In air quotes, um, you know, like that's that's the problem in this is that actually. You know, for, for you guys, it's it's all opportunity. For everybody Absolutely. else, it's just all fear. Yeah, relatively speaking, we have no money and no customers. And so it's <laughs> it's all upside. And for the big banks, they have all of the money and all of the customers. Then let's not forget, they're making a lot of, of money, many of these retail banks. And so a lot of the banks are talking about making each product stand on its own two feet, so not relying on cross-sale and subsidy. The problem is when you have this much more transparent marketplace, the inevitable conclusion is, is price pressure. You'll have to, margins will come down. And so, yes, the banks will make less money per product. And so how do you react to that? Well, you have to have a a lower cost base to service this stuff. And not just by 5 or 10%, but 70 or 80 or 90% lower cost base. And that's a really painful transition. When you you have thousands of branches and and tens of thousands of staff, it's really, really tricky to cut 90% of your cost base. Mm. We'll go on the challenger side in a little while. But in terms of the, I guess, the more traditional players, this spells quite a fundamental shift for how they acquire customers. You know, cross-sell through internet banking is makes up a significant part of the, the kind of revenue generation. If you don't see those customers, if you haven't got that engagement and you can't market to them effectively because, you know, emails and DM and whatnot, like how do how do banks make money then? Not that I'm gonna start feeling sorry for them too much, but how do they see their customers? Well, I, I think you've got to decide whether you want to be a um, a sort of hyper-optimized, efficient balance sheet lender and really, really just cut all of the cost out of your business and get the, the absolute best uh, sort of data scientist and become expert in, in underwriting mm. so that you can identify pockets of the population where you can lend profitably and just get really, really good at that and just aggressively slash all your costs and and even brand becomes much less worthwhile in a, in a commodity marketplace. Yeah. You know, gas and electricity is a good example. It, it burns all the same, the gas that's coming through your pipes, right? The mortgage, the money ultimately is is the same, broadly speaking. So you go the balance sheet route and just aggressively, aggressively cut costs, cut marketing budget, cut brand, and just try and be the best at sort of underwriting data. Or you take the other approach and say, we're going to be a, a customer relationship person. We're going to build the best interface in the market, the easiest, slickest, one-touch experience. We'll have the best customer service and, and brand is super, super important. And maybe, yeah, we'll just get rid of the balance sheet or let other people compete themselves to death sometimes on, on reducing margins. It's not dissimilar from what happened in the telco market um, sort of 10 years ago where British Telecom were, were sort of forced to create like the, the open reach side and the retail side. And you know, the retail side just 
was supposed to get closer to the customer and the open reach side was supposed to open up and become a platform. And it was sort of a score draw, it sort of half happened. Mm. But actually there's there's an opportunity here for, you know, that is exactly I think the strategic axis. You either get closer to the customer or you go further away from the customer and you pick one and you do it really, really well if you believe the thesis that the market is being commoditized and over what time horizon do you believe that's happening? I suspect because of the pressures we mentioned earlier, like mm. the shareholders, like the regulation and like the belief, I think, that the whole house is on fire and I just need to get through tomorrow, which seems to be a bit of a cultural norm, uh, that, that this might not happen. But you know, what, are you, what are your customers telling you that they want from you know, financial services, from banks? Do they, do they want something? That, do, do they mind if it's not the same person doing all end-to-end? Do they just want a better experience up front? What's I, don't, the- I don't think they necessarily care. I think the, the needs and the way the customers approach financial services is changing. Um, the same way that now you potentially expect the tech firms to become financial services sooner or later at this stage. I think transparency is something that has been very important for us, for our business, because traditionally, and of course we're not necessarily competing with banks, but rather with the larger uh, traditional players of money transfer, it has always been this, oh, how much they get charged after the fact. Um, if you really ask the customers, they're always willing to pay a fee. What is there is a reasonable fee that they're willing to pay for a service that's good, speedy, um, and affordable. So I'm not saying that is everything going to be free. I don't think they expect it free because if it's free, might something might be dodgy about it too, right? There is that that dilemma. So transparency in fees uh, is something that can really transform the way uh, banks are behaving. Well, I, I think, you know, like you say, we've seen transparency in things like, uh, you know, Wonga and, you know, and actually some in some instances, it's a good thing because actually people understand pounds and pence and not APRs that are kind of often hidden behind. But mm. it'd be very interesting to see when banks are being shown to be transparent with current account fees, what customers' reactions really are. You know, that's, yeah. uh, I can't imagine it's going to be a particularly positive one. And the second thing is probably easy, ease of use, right? It has mm. to be easy. The way that right now, Think about how you used to make phone calls and how you used to send faxes. None of this is part of our daily life right now. We use WhatsApp or instant message in most of the things that we do. So financial services somehow has to become like that. And that's what the customers need. The It's in their pocket. Yeah, I can't emphasize that second point enough. I was listening to the, the tandem takeover um, with uh, Ricky Knox and Ruth Hancock. I really, really enjoyed that episode. And um, Ricky made a point, which was he was surprised how during kind of the tandem journey, how little customers cared about it being the cheapest and how actually how much they cared about it being a totally seamless, like one or two click experience. And I think that, especially if, you know, in the, on the axis we talked about, if you're going to be the customer interface, that's what matters above all else, actually. I think a lot of our customers have, have said broadly that their money causes them anxiety, that, that sort of this whole thing seems hard and painful and stressful. And, you know, these are these are smart, intelligent um, people who who just don't don't want to engage on, on this sort of like this, I don't know, emotional level with their money because it, it's so painful. And it's things like feeling informed and waiting on holes at call center, just sort of like feeling like you don't. You don't know where the sting is. There are some, you know, the T's and C's are 50 pages long and I've not read them all. And there's going to be some fee in there somewhere that whacks me and I just don't want to get like whacked by my bank again. And so I'm just not going to engage at all. And it's that feeling of just being like anxious or overwhelmed. It's like, I don't want to engage. 
I think if you can make that go away and just again and again and again prove that you're transparent on the customer's side and, and it really will be easy. You know, when we say it's a one-click switch, it is a one-click switch. Whether it's a mortgage or a personal loan or switching your gas or electricity, just again and again making it unbelievably easy, I think that that will win. There's um, you know, the real mental health uh, aspect to that. I know people who you know, just refuse to look at their bank account because they just don't want to see what's going on because they don't know what's going to have happened because money could have come out, gone in, and they just, you know, the anxiety of uh, looking at that means that they just never look at it. Yeah. And actually, you know, this is this is real for a, a, a very large amount of people. You know, people go through this. And I think when you're designing a product in a bank, you've got to be obsessed with that, I think is, is what I took from, from what you said there. And I wonder if that, you know, the fact that free banking has been the norm for so long has led to banks looking for other sources of profit. And actually, Dory, your point is a good one, which is if you're delivering value, people don't mind paying the subscription to Netflix or the subscription to Spotify or or anything else. People will actually pay a fee for a good service. Um, But actually, the fee-based bank accounts we get tend to not appear. Like, who uses the stuff that comes with that? They're also not free, right, (laughs) at the end of the day, because then you get hit with something you don't realize you're going to get hit with or you need to be depositing enough money for it to be free. So it's cross-ups. Is that, is that where actually, I guess, banking and, and some of the people who are coming into banking now are kind of learning a little bit broader from, you know, we've seen the freemium models, you know, going into premium in terms of where, where uh, you know, tech firms have been playing. Like, do those things start to come in a little bit more? Would, do you, you know, UK, would you expect if you're, I'm asked to pay £15 for a current account that was really on my side, do you think people would do that? I think people would do it if also it works. I think that's the key. I think some people would do it. I don't think you need, I don't think as a bank account provider, you need to do that though. I think you can put the customer first and save them a ton of money and also make a decent business at the same time, Mm -hmm. as long as you are super, super low cost. I don't think you need to charge 10 or 15 pounds a month. I think you can do it for for free with no hidden fees or charges with an honest business model, Um, but it requires a totally different cost base. So, so how do we do that? So I'm sure we've got many, uh, many a bank CEO listening right now going, Tom, if just tell us what to do, like how, how do we make this change? How do I get rid of these people and these systems and do it? So what's, what's, the, what's the trick here? So it's, it's, we're in a, in a uniquely privileged place of not having any money or any customers. And so it's very easy for me to say this. And the, the level of complexity and legacy and organizational just like inertia at these big banks is huge. And I speak to um, the senior teams at, at all the big UK banks relatively frequently. And it's um, and the thing I always say is if I, clearly your business is very complex and I really don't understand all the nuance, but if I was in your shoes for a day, what I would be doing is taking 50 or 100 million pounds and a handful of my brightest sort of engineers and designers and saying, go away and build the thing that kills the big bank. And don't tell us where you've gone and only come back when you when you built it. Yeah. And the problem is they don't, they kind of go, oh yeah, that's a really good idea, but we've just we've just bought this great piece of software from XYZ provider to do our card payment, so we've got to leverage that, right? We've got this great team in risk and compliance, and we re- leverage their competencies as well. We'd have to write off a business case to <laughs> save ourselves, so we're not going to do that. Yeah. And it's just sort of once you've like taken advantage of all of these like core competencies, you're stuck with the same baggage you had in the first place. Yeah. You've really got to like totally surrender your ego and be like. It, like it's us that's killing this stuff so we've got to like separate ourselves and just let it go and, mm. and run free and, and 
build the thing that comes to kill us. Otherwise, someone else is going to build it. Yeah. It, it's, it really is like letting a child go out of the house and not holding its hand anymore so they learn how to, to do it for themselves. Otherwise, yeah. how, does it, how does it ever get there? Um, there was a, a great um, speaker I heard talk about the difference between capitalism, 2.0, and 3.0. And 2.0 is very much, we have economies of scale and we build up this monolith and um, we end up at a point where the maximum possible productivity we can achieve with that supply chain style model where we integrate the supply chain as much as possible is around about 20%. Um, and so the productivity puzzle in the economy over the last sort of 40 years is we've got to that 20% and we, we can't get any further because that supply chain model only goes so far. And the only businesses that seem to be threatening that are the ones that don't use the supply chain in the same way. So the emergence of the sharing economy yep. is actually using a supply chain in an entirely different way. So marketplace banking is effectively the sharing economy for banking, therefore more productive as a business model, which I thought was a, a super interesting idea. Yeah, that is, that's an interesting analogy I, I haven't heard before. But yeah, not having to bear the full cost of the, of the balance sheet or of the infrastructure as a marketplace bank, I guess, yeah. You are in many ways like an Airbnb or an Uber, mm-hmm. in the sense you're, you are a technology platform effectively. Other people bring capital assets to plug into your marketplace mm-hmm. and you take a cut. Yeah. It's extraordinarily efficient. I think the monolith is something else that we also use in terms of technology. I think a lot of the larger institutions have quite monolithic tech stack that stops them from being able to swap to something new and better. Mm. It's like, oh yeah, we have this system that we implemented, we bought three years ago, we're still implementing it, uh, and we can't get anything new that uses whatever machine learning buzzword you say you want to use because we need to that's that's some cost and we don't see it this way we should be doing and it something it seemed like a good deal when you bought that system yeah. because you got a you got a great economy of scale out of that deal and it was better than what you had before incrementally but also being locked into that deal and not leveraging that deal that you were excited by then also to your point Tom becomes like an ego point it becomes very hard to not do something that felt like a win anymore it's, um, it's, it's making the hard decision, saying some cost, let's do something else, and decoupling that. I mean, I've spoken, I was in another uh, similar roundtable discussion with the CTO of one of the largest UK banks, and he was kind of like, well, his hands were tied, because there's not that much you could do. Say, okay, get rid of A, B, and C, and let's get all the new stuff. And this is the flexibility that we have at this stage with not having the front of the value chain, not having any shops, but also using technology in a smart way, because we don't have the tech stack but uh, you know, so to your point, Tom, though, are, are banks in this kind of middle of a dark tunnel that they've got to see see out now in terms of the transformation that they pumped billions into to doing it, rather than saying you know the cheapest, easiest, quickest way of doing this is you know it's like the life raft we refer to. You know, it's kind of actually uh, the world is ending. The uh, you know the the seas are rising. We need to go and live on Mars. Yeah, I think they're in a really, really interesting place. Uh, back to that, this sort of, do you become the hyper-efficient balance sheet or the customer-facing brand? I think they're not doing either well. Mm-hmm. And I think there is a... Can't be both. Yeah, you, you, you cannot do both. And actually, there are a wave of banks doing just the balance sheet bit really, so really efficiently. Mm. So um, in the last two or three years, people like Masthaven and Oak North, and, and the interesting thing is no one's heard of them. They don't care about their brand. Um, that's unfair. Their brand is not the thing that gets some customers. It's the price. Yeah. And the thing that delivers the price is the ultra-efficient, um, mostly online-only operating model of these of these new banks. So they are taking that position, which is just, we're just going to be at the top of the Best Buy table. 
anytime you want new customers. And that, that is it. And then just cut all the costs. And then you've got other people like clearly us and, and N26 in Germany and a bunch of people like that doing the interface. So you already have people at the two extremes. Yeah, being cut, caught in the middle is a, is a tricky, tricky place. So is that, a, you know, this is a difficult question, I guess. But then given the fact that we've got people coming into the market who are already going towards the commoditized product, low cost barrier, uh, as well as people like yourself actually creating the interfaces to actually aggregate those things together in terms of a, a good experience, then what is the gap for traditional banking? Because essentially if, you know, definitely, you know, I think the, the trick about the front end stuff is it's not really about just UX. It's about a brand you you know, you trust and a brand and arguably a brand you love, right? In terms mm -hmm. of kind of doing it. The back end bit should be easier, but actually with, you know, try and be HSBC and fire 200,000 people type thing, the governments are very much not going to make that one easy in the same way as they're not making it very easy to shut down branches. So, you know, how do they, how do they win here? I have no idea. <laughs> really, really no idea. Maybe, at that point, we'll bring the podcast now. We <laughs> I mean, maybe it's a question of timing. You know, I, are banks going to fall off a cliff this year or next year? No, no, they're not. Um, and, and then it's sort of a question of degree. Is it going to be in three years time? They're in for a rocky road, but is it going to go off a cliff like a Kodak or a Nokia? Or is it going to be, you know, death by a thousand cups over the next 20 years? Mm -hmm. In which case, you know, what's the life cycle of a, the lifespan of a CEO of a bank these days? Certainly not 20 years. So, you know, leave it for the next uh, guy or, or, or lady. <laughs> yeah, not my problem, next guy's problem. <laughs> but but I, I guess we, we, you know, we, earlier on in uh, the week when we spoke about um, the, the sort of predictions about challenger banks uh, increase in customers, I think they were predicting, um, particularly for somebody like yourself, Tom, you'd have something like 700,000 customers in the next five years, yeah. um, which actually, you know, if everyone who comes in and clearly not every new bank coming into the space is going to have that significant base, um, you know, but we likened it to first direct it took 25 years to get just about that amount of customers, you know, that would be an amazing place to be. If we start seeing the existing banking organizations having that significant customers taken away from them, well, you know, I'm saying it like you're taking people hostage from hostages. That's <laughs> clearly not the uh, not the approach you're going for in terms of doing it. But this isn't an iceberg scenario, is it? I think they they have the ab ability to act pretty quickly when they need to. Because to your point, they've still got lots of money and lots of customers, right? I don't know. We'll and, and we'll see. I think you can debate endlessly and pretty pointlessly about sort of future customer numbers, and it, you just have to kind of wait and see. But the interesting, I think, the interesting thing is that. Once you build a the machine, you know the the bank, the onboarding process that can get to a million customers, it's going to be accelerating. And the the time it took to take the get the first million, the second million will be a lot faster than the third and fourth and fifth millions will be sort of much much faster than that again. And so, do you just accelerate through by the time anyone notices anything's happening? I saw an amazing slide from one of the the USVCs which showed um, time taken to get to I think it was a hundred million customers. And it, it showed Hotmail back in the early you know, 12 years or something. And then, you know, was it Facebook and then Snapchat? And mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's Snapchat was the latest one. It's like down to something like, you know, under 12 months to get to that, that level of scale. And that pace of adoption is accelerating. And so if that happens to banking, and it's a big if, that's a really scary place to be. But conversely, I think the banks are just looking at the, like, the switching numbers, the adoption numbers from the past. And sure, if nothing changes, it's going to all be the same, like clearly. But if, if, if crucially, 
someone managed managed to crack it. I think it's a, a pretty scary place for the big banks. Obviously, one of the big things that tech players are very, very good at monetizing is data. Mm. You know, how much does this sort of new wave of change within the the sort of banking business model landscape really be driven by data? Data for us is absolutely crucial uh, in the way we think about it. In the past, in money transfer, you walked into the agent, you gave your details, your first name, last name, passport number, where do you live, all of these things. You went away, next month you had to do it again. So just from the mere fact that we have the customer data saved, saves them time and money. Uh, by doing this and having that knowledge about what a customer wants and needs is very important. Uh, of course, we're not using the data into selling them cross-selling products because we only have one product. They all, but we can certainly do things to offer them something better, give them alerts when their effects, because I know which country they're sending money to, right? I can send you an alert and tell you, hey, it's a good exchange rate, send money today rather than yesterday. Uh, yeah. Yeah, exactly. No, no, the other way around. <laughs> um, any, any of the above. So we use data across the board in everything that we do. And, and that's a cultural thing, right? So it, it comes down to how we make decisions goes to be data-driven. Look at the data first and data wins arguments and, and those sorts of things, which I guess um, I, I know that there are people saying inside the large banks and I know there are pockets of that culture trying to emerge. There are green shoots of it really coming. Is that something that you feel there's an advantage of having been started with that or are there ways you can adopt that more and more? And what tools and techniques do you use to get really obsessed with data? Because I think there's a difference between data and metrics, right? The metrics are the numbers you look at just for business performance, but data is this bigger, yeah, more of Of course, we use a lot of... Um product being the most important thing uh, at this stage. We use a lot of data we collect and do a lot of testing on what works and you know, the way that people use the product. Uh, and data always wins because it's very subjective. Uh, a very funny example is we, Asim is a multilingual platform. Uh, we support nine languages and there's so many nuances in languages and copy and you, you can go crazy. And I may think that it's better to use the formal in French instead of the informal, but data will answer that for you. What do the customers want? So um, you know, there are companies like, um, especially I look at China a lot and I look at these, these internet giants uh, and financial Tencent and others who really took the, a core business model they had either in e-commerce or a core business model in chat or a core business model somewhere else, looked at that data and found that they could either credit score it to do lending or found that they could use that customer base uh, to, you know, the people were using the chat app to arrange taxis or to split meals. And actually, why don't they, they put a payment service inside that? Um, you know, you look at um, Ant Financial and, and folks like that as being a source of inspiration for where experiences could go. And, and how do you guys see that? Because is it that another possible threat that you get these internet giants really moving into the space? That is definitely something that's going to happen sooner than I think the banks are expecting. When it comes to payments, I think it's a little bit trickier because you get into risk and compliance and something that the tech companies are not ready to face or they don't care. At the end of the day, they're making money, a lot of money in other ways rather than spending 5% of their uh, balance sheet to care about compliance. Mm -hmm. I find that as a barrier to entry for good or for, for worse at the end of the day, but they will be the ones that will take the banks out rather than... Because this, this makes an interesting strategic question, because if you believe that there will be the emergence of these you know, really hyper um, kind of focused balance sheet lenders, 
um, then you know, would the tech companies not re-aggregate those um, at some point as an experience? Is that is that a possibility? For sure. Yeah, I think I think WeChat as the the sort of marketplace or as a center of your um, financial life has already happened in China, and I think you know we're we're talking about Sunday. Um, there'll be a bank with a billion customers. Actually, someday pretty soon in China, right? It's uh, the, the scale of and speed of adoption there is just mind-boggling. I think you know it has a lot to do with a very different regulatory and, and risk environment, and you know, having a population that's so large, and having a population that's sort of that's coming into the middle classes just now, and sort of you don't have to get them to switch. It's it's almost their first experience of an investment product, for example. So I, I think that. That model of WeChat as the platform is super, super interesting, and and yeah, it's not clear that it will be a bank that is the um, the aggregator, the the customer interface. That's certainly a possibility. I mean, I I think that Google and Facebook and Apple and Amazon are all clearly looking at this and have been looking for some time, and for some reason they they haven't yet made it work. You know, every single one of them has tried. Uh, Google Wallet and Facebook Credits and, and Apple Pay and, and um, Amazon Payments. None of them have really got into the sort of mainstream adoption yet. It was interesting that there's uh, a group, uh, a lobbying organization, and I forget the name, we covered it on a, a podcast a couple of weeks ago, where the tech giants in the US have actually created a fintech lobbying forum mm. that is intending to lobby the Trump administration around deregulation of finance, which would be very interesting to watch in the US because finance is regulated state by state. But actually, that lobbying organization may have more joy in jurisdictions like Singapore or the UK, which are actually more open to competition. So, so, so definitely one to watch. Which, which kind of makes me ask the question, what can we learn from other industries and what do you think you guys take from other industries? I think you guys were kind of more born in, in, the, in the tech side of it and engineering cultures. Is that something, what are the, what are the key things you, you pick from a business model perspective or from a culture perspective or, or anything else? Uh, for us, it's all about, uh, especially in the segment that we concentrate on, which traditionally are people that have been excluded from financial services because it's usually the wealthy people that have access to financial services. Um, even if you go into advisory, you know, it's the ones that are high net worth that, that get that advice. So we start by the idea, how is the best financial services model going to look two, three, four, five years down the road where everybody is going to have access because they all have a mobile phone and access to the internet. That's what we call it, the seven-star product. And that's what we're mm-hmm. you know, striving for to democratize that the financial services for everybody and not only for the ultra-wealthy. Um, and I think China has done a very good uh, job in that. And I think the travel industry is one example that comes to mind, uh, always to me, because although I wasn't around. I know that those travel agencies used to exist and only people who could afford could, could do it. But now everybody mm-hmm. who has access to the internet via their phone can book travel, can book hotels, can have access to information of what's good and what's bad, what's a good price and what's a bad price. Transparency again mm-hmm. and availability of choice. And this will happen in the financial services. It is there, but it's quite intransparent. And the experience as we are saying is not the greatest. Over time, data tends towards transparency and therefore opportunities kind of come on the back of that. I mean, uh, is there something, Tom, about uh, the 
delivery of products and the culture around how you deliver products that's that's really important here as well because I think that changing how you do change was something we, we may have alluded <laughs> to but uh, I think that's you know like when uh, when a large organization is let's say they've bought the message they say yep I want to change my culture yeah I want to go to towards the customer or away from the customer um, I'm, I'm okay you know kind of getting rid of all my old vendors I'll start from scratch I'll take my best engineers and now what do I do? And I've got my Scrum coach in and I've got all of these sorts of things. So I know how to run Scrums. Like, yeah. is there still something missing there? Is what's what? Is there an intangible piece in there? Yeah, I th- I think the... It comes back to your, your prior question, sort of who do we take inspiration from? It's, it's consumer tech. It's the, you know, the Instagrams of the world that... And, you know, Y Combinator, which... Uh, um, I was fortunate enough to participate in back in 2011, just just really excellent at churning out really impactful consumer internet products like uh, Airbnb or, or Stripe um, in the payments world. And they've got just a, a bunch of mantras, you know, make something people want. And the only things you should be focusing on in the early days are writing code and talking to users. And it's like this sort of focus on being very, very, very iterative. So being able to to launch something early when it's not yet finished and get feedback and look at the data and how it's performing and, and adjust and iterate just incredibly quickly so that in a year's time you get to a, an amazingly polished product. I think that requires a, a, a pretty deep understanding of how technology works and how sort of con- things like continuous delivery and, and you know, DevOps buzzword, but, but really like how do you ship multiple times a day to reduce your Overall risk, actually, but but increase like the likelihood that you're going to build something that people want. And that's something banks haven't got their head around to actually to put something out which isn't finished yet. Yeah. That's terrifying. It is uh, the the shipping multiple times per day. I remember mentioning. Um, Google are proud of the fact that 50% of their code base changes every day. I said that on stage at an event and uh, the guy who was moderating was like, well, what? how do I plan for that? And I was like, <laughs> oh, the irony. Like, that's not the point. Like, and, and, you know, what does the BRD look like for shipping multiple times a day? And it's like, no, there is no BRD. You're like, you don't write a business requirements document. The whole idea is you should have enough of an input from what your customers have got uh, yeah. that everybody in the team, every engineer, not only knows it, but feels what the customer needs. And yeah. I think that isn't, you, you can document that and there are good ways to document that and there are good ways to make sure you do. I'm not advocating, you know, people do sloppy work here, but there's definitely something cultural there that was that really came to mind. But I think Google should be a good example of that because sometimes I feel that this comes with size, you know, when the, the team gets much larger, mm-hmm. it's harder to keep the culture. Mm-hmm. And I would say the culture is not something you can introduce. Culture is a moving thing that... It's, it's who you hire and, and how you communicate with each other. So it's not like, oh, I'm going to say now, I'm going to have a product-led culture. That's not going to happen in any of the banks and if we just say it. Uh, but Google is a good example of pe- larger company because now they're in the thousands that are still uh, product-obsessed. And then they're, they can be secure enough to say, oh, I'm going to release code that maybe doesn't work, but I'm going to fix it in the next one hour or two hours. We have uh, gone up to you. Tom. So I th- the, the interesting thing about Google is, is thinking about sort of the primacy of different disciplines. And at Google, the engineer is king, fundamentally. You, you, if you write code at Google, you, you pull the levers of power. If you go into a bank and talk to senior executives and say, how many people do you have to go through until you get to someone who actually writes code? 
Like it's going to be a really, really big number. It's because of that like weird sort of governance and project management and just like just accumulation of like layers and layers of stuff that divorces people who write code from people who make like big business decisions. And I think that's what differentiates Google and, and you know, we'd hope Monzo from Barclays and HSBC. Because the executives are seeing dashboards and those dashboards can be a work of fiction. And I think the executives deep down know that, but they have to trust the people that work for them and they have to try and empower them and they've inherited this system. So like, how would you, what do you look for inside your own companies when you're looking to get at information? Would you go, like, I remember working at a bank and it took me a year and a half to meet an engineer. <laughs> how often are you guys interacting with engineers inside your own companies? Is this, you know, Every day? day? Yeah. I mean, we, we all sit in a pretty open space. So uh, we are constantly between the product managers, the business and the engineers is in constant uh, dialogue because every day something, you know, from every little insight we get from the customers being an app review, being an email we got from customer service needs to be shared around the company and say, we need to fix this. And it could be from the smallest thing, but that's how we work. Um, I, so I maintain our Ruby library. That, so that's how, I mean, it's very poorly maintained and <laughs> every out of date, but uh, you know, my background is a self-taught engineer. I, I love writing code. Um, and a good probably third of our company either writes code or is a sort of hands-on designer. Um, and so I look to the, the left of me and to the right of me, and it's an, an engineer and an engineer. Mm. So, uh, you know, Ricky made this comment uh, a few weeks ago on, on that podcast you, you referenced, and actually moving from a sort of design-led to a developer-led ecosystem in terms of actually how that will work is, is kind of what's, what's making it really sort of... Um, tick the box for those guys in terms of getting things done, getting it at the pace that they need to and at the quality where they need. Uh, but that's, uh, you know, again, not wanting to keep dragging this back to how the bank's going to do this because that's quite hard to do. You know, if you attracting that talent, retaining it, you know, developing it, having the salary caps to kind of do it, that's quite a, a, a daunting task. For a really simple idea, though, is like, why not adopt an engineer? Like, if, if you can't find one, if you're a senior exec listening to this and you like can't name, yeah, it, like, if you can't name, <laughs> yeah, like a panda, like, if you can't name, name like a, a single engineer. engineer in your company, like, adopt one for a week, adopt one for a little while, and just, and then also, like, how many people in technical roles with, you know, C at the beginning of the title have written code? And I know there are some. I know they're out there and they're in senior positions in banks, and I know there are some, but I know there are some that don't. Do you know what you've done, though? Like, you're, you've just, like, like Benny Higgins at Tesco is just going to descend upon some poor developer in uh, in uh, Edinburgh and like terrify this poor guy being sitting next to him for a week. Yeah, sorry, dude. <laughs> Whoever you are, engineer dude, I'm really sorry. But the point being, like, just yeah, I think there is a need to get closer to engineers generally, and and engineer listen to your engineers for the love of God and and have some empathy for what they're trying to tell you because I do think there's a culture of like engineers the bottom of the totem pole, whereas actually in tech it's the opposite, almost to its fault at some yeah, point, sure. almost to its detriment, where the engineer is not only king, but too much to king. Well, we were, you know, literally what you've just said, Tom, we were just, we told a story a couple of weeks ago by uh, by somebody that even if they want to make the simplest of change, then it has to go through three program managers to get to a developer who sits in Bangalore to actually make a change. So, you know, the, your effort of actually speaking directly to a uh, developer is almost impossible to do. You know, you, you can't find them, but you can find me three project managers. You know, it's quite terrifying, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it even goes to a simple thing as using tools within the banks. 
It's like think, think what what I'm sure you use. Do we use Slack, right? And the point of Slack is that everybody is on the same channel. And you're able to communicate, especially uh, the developers uh, with the product people, and and back and forth. And no bank is able to implement Slack for X, Y, and Z for security reasons or whatever other reasons you can you can come up with. So even something that might actually help, which is a cultural thing, and it's just a simple tool, they're not even able to. I know. I think another thing is giving those people the agency and autonomy to actually make important business decisions. So you don't have a a product manager or developer who sort of comes up the design, which gets run up the flagpole for compliance approval, or you know has the product sort of committee approved it. You just give that person the training so that they can actually think through the compliance issues and approve it themselves. So you just don't you get rid of the committees. You know, our our head of product is is responsible for, is the approved person for actually signing off product releases. Because he is the closest to the customers and developers and has had the appropriate training and can make those decisions. And I remember talking to a bank that was um, proud of their new committee structure, which was a 13 by 13 matrix of committees that talk to each other. And, and it, Agile, baby. Uh, and, and so like, yes, you've all had scrum training, but you've got a 13 by 13 committee structure to release the budget and the authority for the program managers to instruct some uh, BA to write a document to send to a developer. Yeah. And honestly, I don't know that this mess is anywhere near the C-suite and the C-suite I don't think is aware of that so if you don't know what the problem is how do you change the culture yeah so I think just committees are not I think we try to avoid committees making any decisions committees are great for like groups of people are great for some things like sharing context and communicating and discussing I think they're very poor for making decisions I think individuals make decisions um, and they can they can go and talk to other people but that's, the, but that's the problem of taking responsibility, right? Because people don't really want to take responsibility. It's hard for people in large organizations to actually take responsibility and say, it was my decision, we released it, it blew up. You know, It's always like, no, it wasn't me. It went down the line and it had seven yeah. more people. And I said this and you said this and the committee said that. So it was the 13 people. You know, we all share responsibility. It's okay. There's, there's the backside covering because nothing can ever go uh, wrong if everybody signed it off. And actually, um, if it goes right, success has many parents, so everybody can mm. kind of claim it as their own. Now, this was a move for the, the senior manager's uh, regime, basically, that, that in, in banks now, you have a named person responsible for you know, each sort of important function. IT security, like, who is the person? And that's, that's ultimately the person who goes to jail at the end of the day mm. if it all goes wrong. So I think really the, the regulator is trying to push more towards this sort of individual accountability rather than hiding behind a committee but i'm not sure we've got all the way there yet indeed indeed well i think unless there's any more that, that sums us up really quite nicely i think we've got through an awful lot of stuff there so dora thank you very much for joining us uh, if people want to find out more about uh, azimo uh, how do they do it obviously uh, download the app on the app store uh, you can also find us on azimo.com fantastic and tom if people want to find out more about monzo uh, we're monzo.com monzo on twitter and monzo bank on the app store Fantastic. So thank you very much to everybody for listening. As always, if you like what you've heard, subscribe to our podcast, review us on iTunes, of course. We love reading those reviews. And check us out on 11fs.co.uk if you want to talk to the guys that brought you this podcast. That's all for now. Bye.